So open your Bibles, please, to the book of Hosea, chapter 9. And uh, as you're opening your Bible to that passage, I just want to mention something about our life group teachers. And on Wednesday night, we're having a thing we're calling, we're calling it Life Summit. as teacher training for life group teachers, life group teachers who teach all the ages. If you teach preschool life groups or children's life groups or adult uh, youth or adult. And uh, we want to really... We just believe that teaching the Bible is such a great thing, important thing, and we want to do it well, and so we'll do a big tr- teacher training event that night. And if, you're a, if you've ever thought maybe that's something you'd like to do, whether you teach pr- from preschool to the, teaching the oldest in our church, if you've ever thought maybe that's something that God would have me do, or if someone's ever asked you to think about it, or if you've ever had that stirring in your heart, you can come to this and just learn some about what teaching is about and and how, how we do it and what it, ma- what, what it means and what it takes. And uh, if you don't know what else to do, just show up here at 6.15 on Wednesday night right here in the worship center. We have midweek worship every week, but we'll keep everybody together for a few minutes. And then I'll send people into one of two groups. Either you'll go with the preschool and children teachers, people who are going to teach that age group, or students and adults, one of those two groups. And so if you just know that much that you're interested in finding out more about it, show up here at 615 and we'll sort of take it from there. Um, I, I love our life group teachers. Thank you for the many of you who teach in a life group. We want to do it well and uh, we thank you for um, your work in it. We want to help you to do it the best you can. Well, let's look at Hosea chapter 9. Uh, I'm going to read just the first nine verses. We're going through the book of Hosea. Remember, Hosea was a prophet from God. God told him to marry a wife of promiscuity. He married a woman named Gomer. She was a promiscuous wife. And then God said, that's really an analogy for Israel. And we've talked about how this applies to our lives as well. So let's go to chapter 9, verse 1. The Bible says, Israel, do not rejoice jubilantly as the nations do, for you have acted promiscuously, leaving your God. You love the wages of a prostitute on every grain threshing floor. Threshing floor and wine vat will not sustain them, and the noon wine will fail them. They will not stay in the house of the Lord. Instead, Ephraim will return to Egypt, and they will eat unclean food in Assyria. They will not pour out their wine offerings to the Lord, and their sacrifices will not please him. Their food will be like the bread of mourners. All who eat it become defiled. For the bread will be for their appetites alone. It will not enter the house of the Lord. What will you do on a festival day, on the day of the Lord's feast? For even if they flee from devastation, Egypt will gather them, and Memphis will bury them. Thistles will take possession of their precious silver. Thorns will invade their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of retribution have come. Let Israel recognize it. The prophet is a fool, and the inspired man is insane because of the magnitude of your iniquity and hostility. Ephraim's watchman is with my God, yet the prophet encounters a bird trap on all his pathways. Hostility is in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. Well, I want to talk to you, with you today on the subject uh, payday comes. And you may know something about payday. If you have a job, you get paid. I, I worked construction some with my father when I was young. And, and guys would get paid on Fridays. You got paid on, paid on Friday afternoon. And uh, some of the guys were really careful about how they used the money and thought about it long term. And some of the guys just spent it all the weekend and just kind of try to survive until the next payday. By the way, I think it's something like 60% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 30% of the people who make $250,000 or more 
lived paycheck to paycheck. They didn't take Dave Ramsey, uh, the Dave Ramsey courses, did they? You know, save up for a rainy day and pay, pay, get out of debt, et cetera. Man, I, so payday's really important. I mean, it's really important, but there's, the Bible's talking here about a different kind of payday. And it's talking about consequences that there are results that follow. When, when I was, uh, I, I remember reading a lot about this old pastor, he's from before my time, a guy named R.G. Lee. And he preached a famous message called Payday Someday. And it was in the days where, you know, he was just, it wasn't on the internet or anything, so he'd just go all, churches all over the place, and he'd preach this message, Payday Someday. And the message was a story of a guy named Naboth and a wicked king named Ahab. And Ahab thought he won. Ahab was put to death, and he thought he won. And the story was Payday Comes Someday. Maybe you don't think, maybe you think you, God just ignores what you do, but the payday comes someday. Well, this passage reminds us that the payday comes. And last week we talked about consequences to actions. Every path you get on leads somewhere. And part of really maturity is understanding the concept of consequences. So let's note four principles this passage is teaching us about what unfaithfulness to God leads to. It's going to lead to some place. And if you don't like where it's leading, then you're going to have to consider whether you want to stay on that path or not. So let's note four things together. It's really the story of Hosea. It's the story of Israel. And for many, it's the story of modern life. Let's note these four things together. Number one, unfaithfulness to God leads to bondage. It leads to bondage. That is, sin enslaves us. The enemy is really good at marketing. And he makes you think that sin is really... Like, that's freedom. So you give up the bondage. You know, God's got these rules, and that's bondage. And so you just throw those rules off and do what you want to do or whatever you feel like doing, and that's freedom. But in reality, God warns us of sin because he knows it leads to bondage, always. It's putting us back in chains. In fact, you noticed in verse 1, the Bible talks about how Israel was promiscuous, much like Gomer was with her husband, Hosea. But then... Verse 2 says, threshing floor and wine vat will not sustain them. The new wine will fail them. Judgment's coming. And it says this, they will not stay in the land of the Lord. Instead, Ephraim will return to Egypt, and they will eat unclean food in Assyria. Well, everybody in Israel knew the story of Egypt, because Egypt was the place where they went into slavery. And all of Israel became slaves in Egypt. And then God brought a great deliverance for them, and they were able to leave uh, Moses led them, and they came to the brink of the promised land and almost went in, but fear and doubt and worry caused them to turn back, and they wanted to go back to slavery, back to Egypt, the place of slavery. And it sounds crazy, doesn't it? Until you realize, man, we do something sort of like that now. God sets us free in salvation. In salvation, you are set free from the penalty of sin itself. And God gives you freedom. And yet many Christians, many of us who name the name of Christ, we go right back to the old paths and the old ways and back to Egypt. And we say, you know, God, I'm, I'm, I'm not satisfied with Israel. So Israel said when they got to the brink of the promised land, why, why did we leave Egypt? Because we had cucumbers and leeks. I'm not sure what leeks are, but they had them there. Lots of You could eat leeks and cucumbers, lots of them. We should go back to slavery. Forget about the 
lashes, you know, and the bondage and the forced labor. Let's forget about that for a minute. We had cucumbers and leeks, and maybe you say something, something like that to God. God, man, I don't want to go. This is hard. Following you means I give up all these great things in the world. Let's just tell you, the, the marketer is, man, the enemy marketer is super good at it. He's full-time, and he makes you think that Egypt is so wonderful, and what the enemy's, the enemy's goal for your life is always your bondage. Is always to enslave you. And if you're not careful, even though you've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ, and those of you who have trusted him as Savior have found freedom in Christ, man, you can go right back to Egypt. It's really easy to do. Lots of people do it. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, we're praying you will find freedom in Christ. You'll trust him as Savior and even today give your life to Christ. But some of you are Christians here and you've gone right back to the same bondage and you find yourself going back to the same traps by the same enemy. So Vicky and I have a, we live kind of in the country and um, we have a raccoon problem in the country. They're all over the place. Raccoons are everywhere. You've maybe had raccoon problems even if you're not in the country, but we've had raccoons and they're cute, aren't they? Raccoons are cute until they start climbing up the side of your house in order to get to the bird feeder, you know, and tearing up the wood. That, that's not so cute anymore. And so Vicky said, we, you know, we got to get, Vicky and I both, we got to get rid of the uh, raccoons. And Vicky wanted to, like, she wanted to live trap them. I'm not as compassionate as Vicky, but she thought we should rehome them. She said, rehome them. Like, that sounds, you know, so much nicer. I'm going to rehome them. So we got these live traps. And we, we put some... Um, slices of apple and, cover, and peanut butter on the apple. And those raccoons, like that's like cocaine to them. <laughs> and they, six of them so far we've trapped. And they go into that little trap and get the nice little, there's a nice little apple and then there's a nice, some peanut butter and then swam, that trap just shuts behind them. And then they go crazy, get kind of angry about that. They don't like the they don't like the bondage very much, and I take them out and set them free in your neighborhoods. You know, that's what I mean. <laughs> I go way out in the middle of nowhere. So I have a theory that there's really only like 50 or 60 raccoons in the whole world. They just keep getting trapped and taken to various places, so it seems like there's a lot more of them. Well, those raccoons think, oh, this is so great. I'm going to find this treat, a little snack. Who doesn't like some apple and peanut butter? And then bondage. Christians do this all the time. Oh, it looks so great, so wonderful. Sin will be so magnificent, we say. And then, because the enemy's been waiting all along to spring the trap. He just makes it look good. He makes you think it's appealing. He thinks it's, he makes it look to you like, as though it's so much better. Listen, all the world's going this way. All the cool kids do this. Come on. What are you waiting for? When in reality, unfaithfulness to God always leads to bondage. It always does. And that's the second principle I want you to note. Unfaithfulness to God leads to separation. It leads to separation. That is, sin separates us from God. God made us for fellowship with him. And if you know Christ as Savior, God saved you for fellowship with him. God loves fellowship with you. He loves you. He loves fellowship with you. I don't understand why, but he wants to be around you. He loves to be around you. He loves for you to talk to him in prayer. He loves to tell you more about his purpose and plan for your life. He wants to have a close relationship with you. But sin separates us from God. Verses 4 and 5 talk about um, they will not pour out their wine offerings to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please him. I mean, the very things 
that they were doing, still doing the motions of religion, but there's no longer a connection to God. He says in verse 5, what will you do on a festival day, on the day of the Lord's feast? He's saying, here, you still go through the motions, but there's no closeness with us any longer. There's no intimacy any longer. Well, why? Because of sin. You might say, can you imagine the day uh, Hosea and Gomer got married? They, they, that must have been an exciting day. They dreamed of the future. You don't go into marriage thinking we'd like to be miserable together. You know, you'd like to have a wonderful life. And, and then, man, by the time we get to chapter 9, the relationship's not that great. Well, why? It's obvious. Gomer's chasing every man, everything but her relationship. And God says, this, this, Israel, this is you. I made you for something better. I wanted a close relationship with you. I made you for fellowship with me. But you've chased every idol, everything, and sin separates us from God. Can I just remind you that God wants closeness with you? One of the reasons we gather together in, in church life, God, by the way, God formed that, right? It's God's idea, not, it's not man's. God, God tells us we need each other. We need a fellowship with God. We need fellowship with others. Other people strengthen us, sharpen us, help us. Create, there's great benefit in that, great blessing in that. You can worship God on your own, absolutely. And I encourage you to do so. But there is nothing that can replace the fellowship that we have together. I do notice that sometimes when we let things get in our lives, the enemy is really effective at saying, hey, don't, don't hang around those Christian friends anymore. They'll just make you feel guilty. You know, go to church. That'll... And the very thing we need, often we run from because the enemy is effective at helping us to think we're okay on our own. And God is saying, man, no sin is going to separate you from me. Speaking, I got a, we got a kayak, a two-person kayak. We got it so we'd get exercise and have something that would remind us that we don't exercise. That's why we got it. It's why it's sitting in our garage most of the time. And, you know, you get things to exercise that you never exercise with. This will be a part of your, behold your future, young people. This is what's going to happen. You're going to get things because of great intentions and you never do it. But if we get in the kayak and, you know, you get on a dock or something, if you get in a boat by a dock and you don't, you don't have to do anything and you can just, the wind can push, you can just drift. And if you notice, the dock itself doesn't move. It doesn't move. So if you look up and you're farther from the dock, it's not because the dock moved, because it's, it's founded. It's got a foundation in the, in the ground. But you drift. And some of you here, if you're honest with, your, with yourself and with God, would say, man, there was a time when I was really close to God. We had a deep connection. And not so much now. And I look and I see God who used to, God who made me for fellowship, who I love that fellowship with. Now God seems so distant. But can I just remind you, God has a foundation. He has not moved. But we have it, it's easy for us to drift. Maybe unintentionally. Maybe we didn't plan to. Maybe you never thought, you know, I think I'd like to run from God today. It'd be a really good day to run from God today. But over time, you just let little things get in your life, sin undealt with, sin unrepented of, can just begin to separate you from God and your closest with God um, lessons and just just like gomer there's a, a a day when they started so close and then the relationship so much more distant sin always does that god is holy he calls us to holiness 
He knows it's best for us, but it also is the only thing that keeps us connected to God who is holy. We have a tendency when sin gets in our life, sin separates us from God, and we have a tendency then instead of dealing with it in a healthy way, we can often run from God all the more. Run from the people who would help us, run from the connections that would benefit us, the life group that might encourage us back, the Christian friend who might pray for us, the church that might inspire us, all of those things, God is reminding us that unfaithfulness leads to bondage and it leads to separation. And then notice, well, unfaithfulness to God leads to, to futility, to futility. So verses 6, 7, and 8 talk about this futility that we have in sin. We're, I could say it like this, sin robs us of meaning and purpose. It robs us of meaning and purpose. In verse 6, the Bible says, even if they flee from devastation, Egypt will gather them. That is, they're going back to bondage. Memphis will bury them, a city in Egypt. Thistles will take possession of their precious silver. Thorns will invade their tents. He's describing some futility that is going to be a part of the life of Israel. God made Israel for him, for himself. Instead, they began to trust their talents or their possessions or even their religion. They began to act more and more like the world and less and less like the Lord. God made them to make a difference, but their lives were robbed of meaning and purpose. Or we could say it like this, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Many people will waste their lives, waste their opportunities. Even believers will waste the Christian life, the opportunities that God has for them. So let's just note how sin robs you. It robs, us, it robs you of meaning and purpose. Let's note three things. It will rob you of impact. God made you for impact. Did you know that? And God is capable of impacting the world through you. God is the one who does it. He empowers you. your spiritual gifts and your talents and abilities, but God is the one who does it. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that does that. But sin will rob you of impact. The impact that God wants you to make in this world will be robbed by sin. Sin robs you of opportunities. Many opportunities come because you're living the kind of life God wants you to live. God uses clean vessels, and if our life is not clean before him, we miss opportunities that would not otherwise come. Our testimony is damaged, and our opportunities are lessened. Sin will rob us of joy. We find ourselves, instead of the joy God wants us to have, we find ourselves with the guilt and burden that comes with sin. It always comes with sin. We're we feel guilt partly because we're guilty. We lose joy because we're going in the wrong direction and God has something better for us, but we find ourselves, if we're not careful, wasting our lives. So I read through the Bible. I get paid to read the Bible. You know, it's a great, it's a great job. And I'll read, I was reading through the Bible uh, recently and I read through the book of Ecclesiastes. Now I want to encourage you to read the Bible for yourself. If you've not read the New Testament, read through the New Testament. Read it several times through the New Testament. It's much more doable, and I'd just love for you to really get to, to get to know the New Testament well. But at some point, I want you to read the whole Bible, of course. I've talked to a couple of people in recent days who read the Bible for the very first time recently, and I love that. I love for you to get to know the Bible for yourself, take personal responsibility. And if you do, you will read the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's um, by a guy named Solomon. Maybe you've heard of him. The son of David, the king, and then King Solomon. I mean, um, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing book. So Solomon has, uh, he's, God gives him great insight, wisdom, knowledge. He's just this intelligent, 
God gives him great wealth. And I mean great wealth. He has, he seeks pleasure. He's the king. He gets whatever he wants. He has power. He has fame. People come from far and wide to meet him and ask him questions. So here's a guy who has what you might think, you might think, man, that's everything I'm going for. I'd like to have all of what he has. That's what I want. And if I had that, man, my life would be filled with meaning and purpose. And here's what Solomon said. Everything is futile. He said, that's what he said. Everything is futile. Wealth and pleasure and fame and power, everything is futile. Over and over he says it. You can read it for yourself, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a downer book, I'll just tell you. A guy who has everything we think we need, everything is futile. Here's why. Here's why this book is such a downer. Here's why he says so often everything is futile. I have all of these things that I seek and try to enjoy and think it's going to give my life meaning and purpose. Here's why he says everything is futile. Because in many ways, Solomon wasted his life. In many ways. While his father was more wholehearted after God, Solomon was kind of half-hearted about God. Sometimes he followed God. Sometimes he'd follow other things. He had one foot in faith and one foot in the world. You know this world perhaps for yourself. And in many ways, he wasted his life. All those opportunities, all the impact he could have, even the joy that God could have given him, he missed it because sin robs us of meaning and purpose. One of my favorite I sometimes mention this guy named D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody. He was an evangelist, died in the late 1800s, so it's a long time ago. But I've always admired him from a, from a um, time distance. I've always admired Moody, and partly because Moody did not have some of the things that you would think that's what makes a guy a great evangelist or minister. He was not highly educated, didn't come from great wealth or power or influence, and yet God used him greatly. I mean, just super impactful in his day, probably as impactful as any, uh, any evangelist, any pastor, any Christian leader. And here is what he said was the secret to it. I mean, outside of the obvious, God, the Holy Spirit working in you, God can, the same God who can work through D.L. Moody can work through you. But here's what he said. He said when he was a younger man, he heard this British evangelist named Henry Varley. And Varley was kind of a British revivalist. And in passing, somewhere along the way, Moody heard him say this, and he latched onto this, and he talked about it frequently. He mentioned this frequently in his life. Varley said this, and Moody said, that's for me. Varley said, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. And Moody said, I want to be that kind of man. I want to be fully consecrated to him. And while Moody was imperfect, just like every other person in this world, he came closer to matching that, a man fully consecrated to him than most. And he found a life of meaning and purpose, impact. God opened opportunities, a life of joy. Can I just remind you that unfaithfulness does not lead to joy any more than just seeking things or fame or power will lead there. But God wants you to have meaning and purpose and unfaithfulness leads to bondage and then separation and then futility. Here's number four. Unfaithfulness to God leads to discipline. 
to discipline. So that's not the most popular subject that we could ever speak of, but it's an important one because the Bible tells us this, God disciplines out of his love, God disciplines us. In fact, the Bible says God disciplines those he loves as a father disciplines his own children. God loves us too much not to discipline us. He loves us too much not to tell us the truth. He warns us. He reminds us. He rebukes us. It is in our best interest that he do these things. So let's go back to verse 9 where the Bible says this about Israel. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sin. So the days of Gibeah, there's, almost every time Gibeah is only mentioned a few times in the Bible, and sometimes in reference to Saul, who was, did not follow the Lord very well, or sometimes uh, there was a deception early in the history of Israel. But perhaps this story is referring to a particular event told in the book of Judges, chapter 19, 20, and 21, a terrible story, painful story, a story of sexual immorality and then judgment. It was, it was a horrible story. In the days of Israel... The Bible says every man did what was right in his own eyes. Doesn't that sound like our generation? Whatever I feel, whatever I think, whatever I want. People who are involved in sexual immorality, not unlike our day at all. Our day and age, can I just be frank with you? Our day and age is uh, sexual immorality has just been almost ignored and scoffed at. We can't, we're confused on gender confusion, even though God is not confused by it. God speaks to us directly about uh, gender. God speaks to us directly about sexual morality, about God's purpose and plan for us and why he gives us this gift and what his purpose is and the parameters of it. But our world has struggled with it. And so we find ourselves, much like the days of Gibeah, uh, in sexual immorality and, and arguing with God as though uh, God's in the wrong. And so God, in this case, disciplined them. He said he will remember their iniquity and punish their sin. He's saying that's, this is the same principle of Gibeah long ago is now the attitude of Gomer, the wife of Hosea, and now it's the attitude of Israel, who should be God made for his own. And may I say, much like the modern day church described as the bride of Christ, and yet we are promiscuous so often running and chasing our own things. So let me mention a couple of things here. Number one, God takes sin seriously. He does. You know, can I tell you some good reasons why God takes sin seriously? Because it leads to bondage and separation and futility. There are three good reasons right there. God takes it seriously because he knows it leads to bondage. He knows it leads to separation. And he knows it leads to futility. And so he tells us payday comes someday. There are consequences. Every path you get, you get on leads somewhere. Every mountain you climb has a peak. You're, going, you're headed somewhere. And if you don't like where that is taking you, then you need to reconsider the path that you're on. We don't tend to take sin very seriously, but God does. And he does because he knows it's in our best interest. God is holy as his nature, but he also cares about us. And so he warns us and he reminds us because it's in our best interest that he do. God takes sin seriously. Number two, God provides grace and forgiveness and restoration. Do you know why God gives a chapter like chapter 9 or chapter 8 or some of the other chapters we'll see in the Bible? Because he wants us to learn. He warns us. He guides us. He teaches us. He instructs us. He shows us the dangers. And God provides grace and forgiveness and restoration. He warns us so we will repent. If you're not, if you're not trusting Christ as Savior, I want to ask you to be saved. Repent of your sin and place your trust in Jesus who died for you, who rose from the grave for you, so that you could be saved. Even today, you could give your life to Christ and be saved. 
Christian, I want to remind you, you can be restored. Some of you, as I've spoken this, maybe God just reminded you about some bondage in your own life, some separation from God, maybe some futility in your life. Maybe even he's brought some discipline to you. And he does that to remind you, you can be restored. God is able to forgive. God is able to cleanse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what God does. On the cross of Calvary, Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And you can be restored if you have drifted from God, if you found yourself in bondage, if you've seen the futility of chasing after the world, you can be restored. Come back to God. Repent of sin and come back to him. And remember that he disciplines those he loves. Those he loves. His discipline is not because he hates you. Quite the opposite. If he's disciplining you, it's because he loves you. And because he wants something better for you. And so he tells us about this payday because he's got a better payday than the world's pay. The world pays in a way that is oh, a price we never want to pay. But God is offering something so much better. And so if he's disciplining you, it's because he loves you. And because he wants something better for you. And because his way is right and good and best. I don't want to ask you today to come back to him. And find a father who loves you know, discipline never seemed that exciting to me as a kid. You know what? But sometimes I needed it. It was my reminder that there were some things that were dangerous and that I had to avoid. And my, God's discipline in my life, I don't, man, I don't much like it, but I need it. It's God's reminder that he has a better way and that there's dangers ahead, not the least of which is bondage and separation and futility. And so God is saying, I've got something better for you. And my discipline comes out of my love for you because I care about you, because I want something better for you. And I want to ask you to trust him today. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, is the Holy Spirit speaking to you, convicting you of sin and righteousness? If so, today, would you repent of your sin? Place your trust in Jesus. Ask him to forgive you. Place your trust that he died for you and rose from the grave for you. Ask him to save you, and he will. Christian, maybe there's some things in your life when I spoke this morning, you, you found that there's some things like Gomer, like Israel, in our lives. And maybe God's speaking to you about restoration. And he's saying, man, I want you to be fully consecrated. I've got something so much better. Something so much better. So instead of the bondage and the separation and the futility that comes with the world's way, find the grace and the mercy and the joy and the peace and the direction and the purpose that I have for you. And Father, I want to thank you that you, you care about us so much that you tell us the truth about things like this. You warn us, remind us, and teach us just as you did to Gomer and Hosea long ago and to Israel and their, their relationship with you long ago and to the church that you call the bride of Christ today and to us individually. We live life for a purpose. You're even saved for a purpose. Help us to see that. Help us to follow your better way. And we'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.